And now, the BC Food and Wine Radio Network presents Anthony Gizmondi and Casey Wilson. This is BC Food and Wine Radio. Now, here's Anthony and Casey. Hello, BC, and happy holidays from all of us at BC Food and Wine Radio. Today, Casey and I talk with Daniel Castaño, a pioneer of Spain's Yekla wine region. Napa Valley winemaker Beth Milligan of the famed Spotswood Winery in St. Helena joins us to talk about Cabernet. Master Psalm Evan Goldstein stops by to talk about modern wine in South America. But up next, Julian Grounds, chief winemaker at Craggy Range in Hawke's Bay, talks Sauvignon Blanc. I'm Anthony Gismani with Casey Wilson. Enjoy the show. There's more to come. This is the BC Food and Wine Radio Network. The Maipo Valley is a -a one-of-a-kind spot for Cabernet Sauvignon. Since 1850, Carmen, the first Chilean winery, has been recognized by the most prestigious publications for their innovative capacity to produce wines with identity, while at the same time remaining open to reinvention. For Carmen, it's not enough to be first. It's about being better than yesterday. Carmen, the first Chilean winery, reinventing itself since 1850. Find out more at Carmen.com. Your wine collection is your pride and joy. Years of searching and selecting has merited you an enviable list, but it's time to find a new home for some or all of your wine. As the only auction in Canada dedicated to fine wines and spirits, Iron Gate Auctions offer collectors a safe and inexpensive way to liquidate their collections online. Experts in the field with knowledge and acumen to maximize the return on your assets. To find out more, visit irongateauctions.com. Invest in one of the fastest growing real estate markets in Canada. Green Square Vert is a modern collection of condos and townhomes in the heart of Kelowna's vibrant lower mission. Offering thoughtfully designed one to four bedroom units starting as low as 399000 Located just steps from Kelowna's best shopping, beaches, schools, and more. Rent your unit worry-free with access to top property management firms. For more info on Green Square Vert, visit greensquare.ca. Committed to handcrafting wines of distinction in Cowichan Valley, Unsworth Vineyards and Restaurant is a celebration of all things Vancouver Island. From a seasonally inspired menu showcasing fresh, local, sustainable ingredients to exceptional service and award-winning wines, Unsworth Vineyards gives bold new meaning to -to farm-to-table cuisine. During the month of December, if you can't make it to Unsworth in person, receive complimentary shipping throughout BC on 12 bottle orders with promo code Cowichan. Visit unsworthvineyards.com. Now back to BC Food and Wine Radio. Here's Anthony Gismondi and Casey Wilson. Hello, BC. Big show today. Coming up, Julian Grounds of Craggy Range Winery, New Zealand, famous for its Sauvignon Blanc and Gimlet Gravel Red Blends. Here's our conversation with Julian, who explains how he got started. I got started quite early. I was kind of 17 when I started working in the industry, and... Uh, you know, growing up in the southern part of Western Australia, I ended up studying and working at uh, in Margaret River. And my first job was actually at Lewin Estate, so famous Chardonnay producer over there. And I suppose it was that wow. indoctrination of quality and, and um, you know, that whole thing that set me up knowing what, what is required to achieve um, what I hope to make great wines. And I think it's just been a, yeah. a mantra and a focus that's, that's kind of led to the decisions I've made uh, along the way. Yeah, 
what I like about, you know, of course, for our listeners, Lewin's very uh, famous for Chardonnay, and they, they sent you off, or you had an opportunity to go off to France. Uh, you didn't actually go to uh, where other people have gone, to the to the Cote d'Or in Burgundy, but rather a little further uh, down in the Mâconnet. Uh, and you just, I think you just learned a lot about Chardonnay there that, that helped you maybe today, the way that you make wine. What what was it about the French that, that you took away from that experience? Yeah, it was it was interesting because you touched on it wasn't the Cote d'Or, and I ended up in a village uh, um, of Fusay, so making Cui Fusay Chardonnay. And I, I think it was it was a really w- worldly experience there. It's like kind of real France, in quotation marks, without the, I suppose, the fame and the glam that's associated with the Cote d'Or. So I, I would be picking in the morning and then going through to the winery, you know, doing these kind of 18-hour days that would go the whole uh, the whole gamut of the process and, and i think that i learned a lot about uh an, an alternate way of doing things um i had a quite a technocratic uh, upbringing through university and then a, a quite disciplined and i think i was very fortunate enough uh training at lewin and and it opened my world to uh the the possibilities of um alternate techniques or or also the the importance of aspect because pui frisay was so varied in it um, the aspect down there, and I think I started to to yeah. really question and and ask questions and and believe that there was more than one way to do things. And I I, I suppose I believe it was the start of me um, hopefully defining my own style and beliefs. Uh, you also came over to to America. You ended up in Oregon at Ponzi Vineyards too, I guess, to discover uh, the Pinot Noir story there, among others. Uh, was that a good experience as well? Oh yeah, and I can't talk highly enough about the family and, and working closely with Louisa for a couple of vintages who were fortunate enough to, to call a really close friend. I actually had her son come and work for me last harvest. But uh, I, I was obsessed with the idea of making Pinot from about 18 and, and Western Australia is not the ideal climate for Pinot And so, you know, it led me to Oregon and, and I, um, there it was, you know, everything was booming in terms of the the dynamicism of what was achievable. And, and I think that's where I just saw uh, the opportunity involved with um, with so much uh, research going to clones and style and everyone having their house style and, and also just a great part of the world. It was really um, formative for me and um, I, I can't wait to get back there, to be honest. <laughs> Our guest is Julian Grounds. He's the chief winemaker at Craggy Range in Hawke's Bay. Well, Julian, you, you ended up at Craggy Range uh, I know they searched the world for winemakers and uh, from from quite a large list got down and selected you. Uh, I, I didn't know you at the time, and I was quite shocked that they would pick such a young winemaker until the moment I met you, and I thought, oh, my God, they've got the right guy already, and he hasn't even started. So I I, I want to ask you a bit about the, the Peabody family and how, they, how you melded with them. What did you say to them to get this job? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thank you very much. And, um, yeah, it wouldn't be the first person to uh, to wonder, um, you know, where the baby face came from at Craggy Range. But, uh, you know, we had really honest discussions about what they were looking for and, and also looking for someone that would provide a, the next kind of long-term vision. And I was at that age uh, in my life where I really wanted to, um, to define something for me. And, and I always wanted to be associated with world-class producers and, and obviously craggy uh, in an Australasian context, but also a world context, so highly regarded. Uh, when, I, when they reached out to me, I just um, it was a really humbling experience. But I, I think it's that opportunity for someone like me that's um, really chomping at the bit to, to grow with a business 
Um, but also for Craggy Range, you know, they've been around now for 20 years and now getting that period of uh, established vine age, they're really looking for someone to, to kind of start on the next generation of Craggy Range and, and I suppose solidifying the quality of wines, but also um, innovating and looking to the future. Uh, I know it's a bit of a, a tightrope walk. I mean, you go in there, you you want to do your thing. There's a style that's there. You have to sort of carry that on. But uh, I, I guess that helps because they have some crazy thousand-year plan. Did, did, did that take you by surprise when you learned about that? Yeah, and and when and when you articulate that to people, so you know, basically the the business has been placed in a trust for a thousand years, which means that no change of ownership, and and people are really surprised, and it's a very forward-thinking vision but I suppose we looked at uh, places like you know I looked at it when we were talking to them about those places throughout Europe who have had that many generations of winemakers and uh, it's a humbling experience to know that you're going to be a small cog in a very large uh, wheel but also it gives you um, the trust that you need and, and you touched on it knowing that uh, it's the long game and anything you make is is going to have meaningful um change towards the future of, or, or as opposed to it being, you know, what will the future hold? Uh, so, yeah, I was yeah. really excited by it. And I, and I think that um, it gives us real certainty. And I hope that when I'm older or, or maybe when I'm, uh, you know, six feet under that people look back and they look for the record books and say, oh, yeah, that, that, that was that Julian Grounds guy who made wine, you know, for forever <laughs> along it was. And that, and that, and that you know, and hopefully it's a long time, but that, that feels amazing to think about in itself. Well, let's talk a little bit about New Zealand and Craggy. I want to start with cool climate. You know, this word's thrown around the wine industry, but as someone from Canada, I always laugh about what some people call cool climate. Do you have a definition of it, and do you think New Zealand is the cool climate place? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a buzzword, isn't it? Uh, Tony, like, I, I agree with you. It does get thrown around a lot. And uh, I think that, um, you know, the, for me, the definition of cool climate is, it, it operates in that kind of narrow bandwidth of varieties that um, need to, to mature to their ultimate quality level in a cooler climate. And we, and we throw the, you know, Sauvignon and Pinot Noir in that kind of discussion. But also not, you know, looking at the effects of climate change, um, New Zealand is this very small landmass bobbing around in the ocean down there. So we're, we're very susceptible to all, a, a variety of cool weather systems. And so for us, it's that kind of uh, phenomenon where, where most of the people in the world at the moment are very worried about acceleratedly heat summers and how do we put a, um, brakes on things to make sure that we retain freshness. New Zealand is still, you know, we still have those vintages year on year where we have no problem with freshness and natural acidity. We're just hoping to achieve ripeness. And for me, that's the mm. definition of cool climate. You know, when you're not waiting, you're not uh, hoping that you're going to have any acidity left at the end. It's making sure that you can hold out for ripeness. And I hope that makes sense to yeah. listeners. And I think that personification of freshness in New Zealand wines is inherent. Well, I'll tell you what doesn't make sense. If I'm from Bordeaux and I'm talking to Julian Grounds and he says to me, well, we make Sauvignon and Pinot Noir, but we also make Syrah and we have a big Bordeaux blend. Uh, that must freak out a lot of people. But uh, I, I, I'm amazed that the rest of the world hasn't really ever pursued that. What, how hard is it to make such different wines in the same facility, uh, in the same, more or less the same region? Uh, yeah, so, so definitely the same facility. The, the vineyards themselves, so our Pinot Noir and our, uh, and our Sauvignon Blanc come from close to, to Wellington, the New Zealand's capital in the region we call Martinborough. The region called Martinborough, sorry. Mm. The Bordeaux varietals and Syrah come from the Hawke's Bay, where, where our winery is based. 
And for those of you um, who have seen the images, it's basically these alluvial riverbeds. So we call it the gimlet gravels. And it is really these, you know, these amazing stones, very young soils, but they it's that refraction of heat back up through the canopy, but also very free draining and remarkably sunny in the region of Hawke's Bay. So I say cool climate, it's definitely cool, but we don't get uh, we don't get much rainfall. So it's all that kind of phenomenon that makes sure that we, we stimulate root growth. Um, we have very low crops. We're all high density at, at Craggy Range. And I think that ultimately what happens is we get this real beautiful savoury note in our wines that is not seen often, and I find, in the, in the New World versions of Syrah and Bordeaux blends. Well, I don't want to run out of time. We're talking to Julian uh, Grounds. He's the chief winemaker at Craggy Range. Julian, we have in our marketplace in over 65 stores the 2019 Craggy Range Sauvignon Blanc, which I would just say off the top of my mind isn't like very many other Sauvignon Blancs made in New Zealand. What can you tell us about this wine and why we might want to go out and grab a bottle and try it? Yeah, so, so uh, primarily um, people would notice that you said Tamuna and Martinborough, not Marlborough. So very different to the wines from Marlborough. Uh, Martinborough is across the mm-hmm. strait on the North Island. But I, I think the thing for me is it's got a real salivating nature, beautiful, pristine and pure fruit as opposed to being, you know, overt tropical fruit. And I, I, the, also the hallmark for me is it's a very beautiful wine with food. So um, complimentary, we, we really do look to making it um, to be, uh, you know, drunk um, and accompany food rather than be drunk beforehand. And effectively, I make that not not dissimilar to how people would make house champagne. So I have it's all off the one vineyard. It's all crazy range grapes, and I make thirty different Sauvignons to make that wine. And we make sure we select some grapes for the acid line, some for the phenolics, and some for the fruit purity. So it is a wine that's crafted with intent, and uh, there is some barrel mm. fermentation for added complexity. So I'm hoping that when people have that wine, they notice the the purity and the beautiful nature of it, and not kind of overt fruit um, that kind of smacks them in the face. Julian, uh, well, the wine is delicious. Uh, we love the wine, and uh, we, we've really enjoyed talking to you today and getting a little insight into Craggy Range. Uh, it's been a while since we met, but I hope that we can get together either there or in Vancouver sooner than later because, uh, after all, the best stories in wine, I think, are told in person. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Anthony. For those who aren't aware, I mean, I was actually headed there as part of New Zealand Wine Growers uh, last June, so it seems... Um, it seems a ways away now, doesn't it? But um, I, you know, I think we all we all operate in that beautiful network of of wine, and um, like you said, I, I think we have to go out for sushi again, Anthony. Thanks so much, Julian. Uh, real pleasure to chat with you, and uh, good luck with the upcoming harvest. And uh, maybe we'll get together sooner than later. Okay, great. Thanks so much, guys. It was great to talk. There's more to come. This is the BC Food and Wine Radio Network. Bold. Award-winning. Discover Gold. It's a season for big, bold red wines at Gold Hill Winery in Oliver. We've built our reputation on age-worthy Bordeaux-style reds. Join our wine club today and receive a $25 gift along with other fantastic benefits. For more information, go to goldhillwinery.com. Discover Gold. Gold Hill Winery on the beautiful Golden Mile Bench in Oliver. Online, goldhillwinery.com. 
Committed to handcrafting wines of distinction in Cowichan Valley, Unsworth Vineyards and Restaurant is a celebration of all things Vancouver Island. From a seasonally inspired menu showcasing fresh, local, sustainable ingredients to exceptional service and award-winning wines, Unsworth Vineyards gives bold new meaning to farm-to-table cuisine. Enjoy a delectable menu in a gorgeous restaurant where casual meets elegant. Sip and savor refreshingly delicious wines overlooking panoramic vineyard views. Reserve today at unsworthvineyards.com. The Maipo Valley is a -a one-of-a-kind spot for Cabernet Sauvignon. Since 1850, Carmen, the first Chilean winery, has been recognized by the most prestigious publications for their innovative capacity to produce wines with identity, while at the same time remaining open to reinvention. For Carmen, it's not enough to be first. It's about being better than yesterday. Carmen, the first Chilean winery, reinventing itself since 1850. Find out more at Carmen.com. Red Rooster Winery invites you to visit for a sensory journey from grape to glass. Enjoy the sweeping vineyard, lake, and mountains from their cozy estate tasting room on Naramata Bench. This month, Red Rooster is featuring their new release of Pinot 3, a co-fermented blend of Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc, and Pinot Gris to sip while you take in the views. Tastings are offered seven days a week from noon to five this winter. Come for the views and stay for the wine. Visit redroosterwinery.com for more info. Now back to BC Food and Wine Radio. Here's Anthony Gismondi and Casey Wilson. Hello, British Columbia, and happy holidays. I'm Anthony Gismondi with Casey Wilson. The 2021 Vancouver Wine Festival in the theme region of South America was canceled this year, but one of the individuals who was set to lead the presenters was Master Som Evan Goldstein, a San Francisco-based wine consultant and longtime friend of the show. Here's our conversation anyway on South America just before COVID postponed the show. Oh, it's a treat to uh, to be with you both. I recall uh, fondly and vividly um, being at the festival uh, last year and our chatting about it at table in the uh, tasting uh, just before I, yeah. I left. So uh, and you yeah, made it happen, it's, it's, kind uh, of, sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, let's take a quick look at South America because, uh, as I think you're going to talk about, uh, the big four get a lot of uh, play, but what's going on sort of globally across South America and wine? Well, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and, and, and really the big four for so many people is really the big two. Um, obviously, Argentina and Chile are, are without question volumetrically and image-wise the most important countries down there. But you know, within South America, um, Brazil and Uruguay produce a fair amount of wine as well. But what I always think is interesting for people is if you, you uh, peel off a couple more layers of the onion on a continent of 12 uh, nations, 10 out of 12 of them make wine. There's no you know, commercially available wine in Suriname or, or Guyana, but everywhere else makes wine, and they do have impact. You know, collectively, I always you know, remind people that as such, it does make South America the most important wine continent outside of Europe uh, in terms of sheer volume and number of participating uh, nations, and one that has a pretty, uh, pretty formidable uh, footprint around the world. You know, just here in the United States alone, south of your uh, south of the border uh we you know one out of four glasses of wine or bottles of wine served and consumed um are south american yeah and the prices are amazing from south america 
Yeah, very much so. You know, in in spite of all of the craziness of, of tariffs and things like that, which, you know, down here right now, unlike our European friends, the South Americans are not uh, being penalized at all. But nevertheless, you know, when one thinks about it, you know, the cost of land, cost of grapes, cost of labor, cost of inventory, et cetera, are remarkably lower than they are in many parts of the world. And that um, generally does equate in bottles arriving to all of us uh, at a fairly good price when compared to, you know, their neighbors and, and other uh, producing countries around the world. I always tell people that, you know, the, the, the $15 bottle of wine that you buy, Argentinian or Chilean, which are usually the most uh, accessible to us um, here, are equivalent to a wine of, you know, $10 more per bottle elsewhere when you look at the, uh, the quality yeah. objectively for the reasons that I, I brought up. Our guest is Evan Goldstein, uh, Full Circle Wine Solutions, and uh, was to head up the South American uh, delegation here. Evan, uh, we're going to talk later to Aurelio Montes, but that's one of the things he's been fighting his whole life is to raise the image of uh, Chilean wine and to raise that FOB price because they feel like they're somewhat discriminated against globally uh, as the sort of cheap and cheerful producer, and yet we know they have so much more to offer. Oh, very much so. And, and fortunately, there's so many other people um, who are, 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 for better purposes, more objective than, than Aurelio is. And Aurelio is one of the great ambassadors for Chile and wine out there. But increasingly, more and more people, you know, people such as yourself, people such as Tim Atkin, people such as Jancis Robinson, a number of other great white wine writers around the world and critics have been really commenting on how as people explore provenance more and are really, as we do in, in, the, in the U.S., as you do in, in Canada, explore, um, you know, sense of place greater. Uh, they're learning that, you know, with the, uh, you know, amazing uh, range of soil types of colluvials and alluvials and the climate conditions that they have there and in amazing viticultural people uh, such as Pedro Para and such who are really exploring uh, what is there, uh, it's there, yeah. there is a treasure trove of super quality premium wines increasingly made available from uh, that country. You have experience, obviously, a lot of experience in California. They're, in some ways, I feel like they're struggling with Malbec, with Carmenere, with Cabernet, with these single varieties when perhaps maybe they should move on to something different to capture the imagination of the next generation of wine drinkers. Have you, do you see that, or do you feel that from California, even from North to South America, that perhaps we'll move in a different direction? Well, but will you, I think over time, people, um, consuming people and certainly the trade have become more and more comfortable of and embracing of blended wines. And one of the things we know in South America, be it in Argentina or in Chile, most notably, you know, these so-called cortes, C-O-R-T-E-S, which are their word for blended wines, right. are yeah. part and parcel of what they do, whether it's, you know, in Chile or, or, or Argentina, making wines that are patterned on, you know, sort of the traditional wines of Bordeaux, which don't worry about how much Cabernet or how much Merlot or Carmenere or whatever is in there. That's been part and parcel of what they do for a long time. We tend to still be um, a little bit variety centric here uh, in the U.S., which is to say people do want to see that grape type on the label. But statistics will, will, will show you, and I'm not telling you anything that you in case you don't know, that more and more people are becoming accepting of blends and less um, uh, uncomfortable with the idea of not seeing a grape variety on the label. And that, of course, bodes well uh, for countries like Chile and Argentina, where Cortes are such an important part of what they do. 
I'd like you to tell us about Paish, the Criolla grapes. Ah, yes, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the uh, secret ingredients or secret weapons, I think, that, that most of these countries are going to have in South America moving forward is this long history of a, a, a category of grapes that they call Criolas, C-R-I-O-L-L-A-S, which are the grapes that essentially came to South America through, um, because grapes are not native to South America. I think a lot of people don't think about that, but there were no grapes there, and it was really through through um, the Spanish, at first the conquistadores, and then secondarily uh, the missionaries who came over who brought grapes with them uh, from the homeland. And this is long before you know people were thinking about things like Tempranillo and stuff like that. And yeah. they brought grapes, a lot of them coming from the Canary Islands and, and uh, places like that, that were uh, Pais, which is uh, the grape of Chile, the national grape of Chile, uh, called Criola Chica over in Argentina. We call it the mission grape here in North America. I don't know if you have any up in Canada, but we still have a little bit left here in California. And it's also called Listan Prieto, uh, which is the name it carries over in Iberia. And uh, that's a grape that was planted um, ages ago, of which there are still plantings that can be found uh, that are, you know, almost 200 years old um, and living and still producing there, but one of just uh, a handful of grapes. That's the one that gets the most press. But there are other grapes, uh, Moscatel. Uh, obviously, there are strains of Moscato that go back that far. Uh, the Pedro Jimenez grape with a G rather than an X uh, over in Argentina has been getting more play. So there are these, um, these uniquely South American grapes uh, which are, you know, um, a signature, an increasing signature uh, for those countries. They are, you know, even in places like Bolivia and Peru, um, you find grapes like uh, Molar and Uvina and things like that that are primarily used for distillation, for Pisco, but a lot of people are playing with them to make wine out of them as well, and mm. they've had some very good results. Our guest is Evan Goldstein. He's the president and CEO of Full Circle Wine Solutions, uh, also a master sommelier for uh, uh, decades. Uh, too many decades, perhaps, Evan, now. But uh, I want to <laughs> uh, what's your take? Uh, we're almost out of time. But what's your take on then this next generation? Everybody talks about millennials. Nobody can figure them out. Uh, I assume that they're going to just become mostly like us. I mean that in a good way when it comes to wine. But what do you think about that? That uh, selling wine to millennials? No, you you and I share the same point of view. I mean, I remember when I was of that so-called millennial age, or maybe not so much me, but a lot of my uh, my cohorts and all that, and we were all drinking, you know, beers, uh, inexpensive and craft, and we were drinking our, our things like that. Today, I guess they all drink White Claw and everything like that. But yeah. I, I think over time, as people mature, um, one, they kind of move past a lot of those uh, those beverages, and they move into uh, other things. And I think they realize with the beer end and the cocktail end, they're much more caloric and you can only drink so much of them and you know i always tell people that you know particularly as people become more interested in in their food and all those other things you know until somebody can show me uh you know uh, a flavor of white claw or a gin and tonic rtd or whatever that makes my food taste better uh wine will always have a leg up in that regard right perfectly said there's more to come this is the bc food and wine radio network this winter, join us at Black Hills Estate Winery for an intimate and informative seated wine experience with our team of wine educators. Sample our renowned portfolio of wines, including the rare and wine club exclusive Carmenere, and learn about the terroir that makes the Black Sage Bench region so unique. 
Our current releases are available online for gifting and stocking up your cellar. Find out more about our available wines, wine club benefits, or book one of our seated wine experiences at blackhillswinery.com. This winter, stay cozy and warm with award-winning wines from Tinhorn Creek Vineyards. Visit their tasting room any day of the week from 11 to 4. Elevate your experience with their black glass blind tasting or book a private varietal specific stemware tasting. Become a VIP and join their crush club. Your membership includes regular wine shipments, a 15% discount, early access to new releases, and free premium experiences. From the beginner to the experienced wine connoisseur, Tinhorn Creek has your amazing experience waiting. Visit tinhorn.com. This winter, the Inn at Therapy Vineyards invites you to get away for a luxurious retreat experience. Modern rooms overlooking the vineyards and Lake Okanagan set the tone for a relaxing stay on the Naramata bench. Sip award-winning Therapy Vineyard wines on your patio, soak in the hot tub, and enjoy a guided tasting experience in the wine shop. Book your room online today or order Therapy Wines delivered to your door at therapyvineyards.com because everyone needs a little therapy. The Maipo Valley is a one-of-a-kind spot for Cabernet Sauvignon. Since 1850, Carmen, the first Chilean winery, has been recognized by the most prestigious publications for their innovative capacity to produce wines with identity, while at the same time remaining open to reinvention. For Carmen, it's not enough to be first. It's about being better than yesterday. Carmen, the first Chilean winery, reinventing itself since 1850. Find out more at Carmen.com. Now back to BC Food and Wine Radio. Here's Anthony Gismondi and Casey Wilson. Happy holidays, BC, from the BC Food and Wine Radio Network. On the show today, Beth Milligan of Spotswood Winery takes us on a journey chronicling her family's arrival in Napa Valley and all the challenges they faced along the way. It's a story of true perseverance and passion. Here's our discussion with Spotswood Winery owner, Beth Milligan. Sure. We're right here, um, If for any of you who have visited Napa Valley, and in particular the town of St. Helena, we are on the west side of the town of St. Helena, uh, right up against the Mayakamas Range on the west, and uh, we have uh, 45 acres here, right in the city limits, as a matter of fact, so we are surrounded by uh, residential neighbors, which is pretty fascinating. Um, we got here because we moved here in 1972. My father was a doctor at age 39, decided that he wanted to raise his a family of five children uh, in a more rural environment from the part of northern San Diego County where we came from. And so uh, he had his own medical practice, and uh, and all of a sudden myself and uh, our, my four siblings and my mom were up and moving to uh, this old property called Spotswood uh, here in St. Helena because although my parents knew absolutely zero about grape growing and winemaking, they did know that they needed a house large enough for five children. And my mother was an avid gardener, and my dad wanted to drive a tractor in a vineyard. So Spotswood <laughs> offered all of those things. And uh, at a time when Napa Valley was undiscovered and a family like ours could consider a move to Napa Valley, which is now very well known, and prices reflect that at the time, uh, we were very fortunate to move here when we did. And how old yeah. were you, Beth? I was 11 when we moved here. Wow. That's amazing. And uh, unfortunately, your father passed away uh, not that long after, and and your mother was left uh, with the business along with the kids. Uh, uh, She did an amazing job as well. Yeah, she she did. My my mother, and of course you know her, you knew her, uh, Tony. But she was yeah. a remarkable woman, my north star always and still. 
Um, and yeah, she, my, my father, five years after being here, we had replanted the vineyard and he had actually had to go back to practice medicine a bit because he was um, spending a great deal of money and earning nothing and that did not work. So he was an emergency room doctor for a few years uh, at the Salina Hospital and then very unexpectedly, he died of a heart attack at the age of 44 in 1977, leaving my mom a widow uh, with all of us. And she was, uh, you know, she had already, in a just five-year period, had really fallen in love with Napa Valley. And, of course, we were all here. She loved Spotswood. And, and before my dad's death, they had sold fruit to a handful of other people, among them, you know, Frog Sleep and, and various people. And then, mm-hmm. ultimately, after my dad's death, my mom uh, decided to keep selling grapes because they had started to do that. And she was... Uh, able to to do that, and when both the Duckhorn and the Schaefer families bought fruit from us, they had known my dad, and they had known that their shared dream had been to make wine, and so they were really encouraging to my mom, and so uh, that got her going. And in 1982, uh, she started the winery, and and um, we made our first vintage of Cabernet, which was 10 years after we moved here, and five years after wow. my dad's death. And I remember a story, Beth, about a real estate fellow coming to your farm or to the winery. Yes. And can you can yeah, you tell us I was, that story? I was in high sc- yeah, that was that was a pretty remarkable one. So I was sixteen when my dad died. I was a junior in high school. So this must have been and it was in the fall of that year. So I'm thinking in the spring of nineteen seventy eight, you know, a real estate agent came right up on the front porch of the estate home, which was which is what we have. I mean, we still have that and knocked on the door and I was there. So it must've been after school or it must've been on a weekend. I don't know. But um, anyway, you know, asked my mom uh, if this, if the property was for sale and my mom, I had never seen this in her, uh, but boy, she just got her, her back stiffened and she just looked at this person and said, you know, if, if it had been the other way around and I had died and my husband was still here, you would never come up here and ask me if this property was for sale. And she said, uh, this property is not for sale, and and I would like you to get off my front porch. I mean, she was – I had never seen – my mom was was tough but never <laughs> direct that way. And at that point, at that moment, I think that's when she really decided that her roots were here and she wasn't going anywhere, and she was really uh, peeved that this person had made an assumption like that because she was a woman uh, left as a widow. Yes. Didn't affect you at all, though, did it, Beth? <laughs> not at all, no. <laughs> Boy, I remember that really clearly. I mean, it really yeah. did impact me. It was, it's, yeah. And I feel like now, yeah, I've, I've dug those same roots in the ground here, and I'm, I feel very much the same. I am very lucky to be doing what I do. We've been talking to a lot of people about uh, it's the 10th anniversary of, uh, of a sustainable uh, action across California vineyards. Uh, a lot of people getting right. certified now. You, I can't keep track of all the organizations and, and things that you're now connected to uh, from organic certification to Demeter biodynamic certification. But the one that intrigues me is, is uh, the International Wineries for Climate Action as well. So wh- why are you in all these things and how is it helping you and what, what, what's your mission? So for us, I mean, our, our mission um, literally, or actually I should say our, our core purpose, which is really what drives um, – all of this is, you know, what we what we are is rooted in agriculture. We believe affecting meaningful change in our land, our community, and our planet. So we we took that which we created um, in in 2019 and have really run with it. You've noted that we've been doing things environmentally for years with our starting farming organically in 1985, thanks to Tony Soder, and then everything from 
uh, dr driving a restoration of a creek, of, a, of an in-town creek that divides our vineyard or defines the southern boundary of our vineyard, uh, mm -hmm. to solar power, to being part of 1% for the planet since 2007, um, and onward. And, and, you know, what is driving us and uh, is it, and driving me, but driving us because everybody here at the winery really feels strongly about our core purpose and our and our vision is that I'm now the second generation of what I hope will be a multi-generational family wine growing business. And while most people would think, well, the biggest challenge to that is just going to be family dynamics and, and family, you know, all of that, right? Because we all yeah. know how difficult it is to continue family businesses in the best of times. I view my biggest threat to being able to do that as climate change, because we are, I mean, we are all about the grapes we grow and the wines that we make are based upon farming. We are agriculturally based and without a relatively stable climate, um, we cannot look forward comfortably to a future in, in agriculture. It's, mm -hmm. it's very, it's remarkable the extremes that we have addressed and dealt with over the last I mean, four years have obviously been significant with fires, high winds. Uh, this year, we've had our lowest rain year ever. We've had just under 12 inches, and we're supposed to get 36 a year. I mean, that's quote our quote-unquote normal. You know, last year, we got 16 out of the last 10 years. Eight of them have been seriously very dry. Uh, and last year's fires, I mean, the fires in 17 were, were horrific, and uh, last year's 2020 fires eclipsed those. Uh, so it's remarkable where we are and so our hope is to is to lead by example and also you know let our customers understand that their ability to continue to buy excellent wines is tied to all of us coming together to care about our natural environment and turning the tide on on climate change we have to start now and then uh, over time bring bring back it bring it all back because we are on the brink hmm. Very well said. Uh, and, of course, many of these organizations, uh, I know the Jackson family and Taurus, people are have gone sort of global with that. You've uh, become a member in, in that group. So it's available yeah. to everybody. What would you say to Canadians, the wineries uh, that are looking at it or maybe tepid or I don't know? How, how do you get people to just jump in and get going? You know, I think I think it has to come from a core belief that, 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 we, that we all need to step up and that the wine industry – has a unique opportunity to communicate um, to to our audiences who are generally, you know, people who are drinking wine or are at a generally at a demographic that can really sort of maybe move the needle a little bit. And so to the extent that we can get people engaged and inspire them to to truly understand not only our the, the connection of a winery and a, and a vineyard to to the health of our planet and, and of our natural environment and uh, mother nature but get them to understand that we're all part of it you know and and we all need to i mean i think this time more than ever you know we've been through the pandemic and we're still not out of it but we've been through all these things and i think you know the cognizance is that we we need to have sort of uh, capitalism with a conscience and and we need to move forward in a manner that that indicates caring for our communities for our land for our environment for our planet it's it it business as usual simply doesn't work anymore so i would i would hope that uh, that canadian wineries i mean we would love to have uh, uh members from canada to iwca because i think international uh, wineries for climate action has the opportunity to really yeah. to move the needle it's, it's pretty exciting and it's all for the common good it's so exactly. important to get everybody on board. And even though we don't have the issues yet that you have, 
they're you know they're there for sure with climate change. That's correct. They're they're coming. I mean, you're further north than us, so so far maybe some of this warming and and the changes have have been welcome because because you're so much further north than we are. But it will it's coming home to roost for for everybody, and we we all need to we just all need to be a part of it. And and this this community, this wine community, has always been good at at collaborating and and working together, coming together for great causes, whether it's tastings that, you know, that uh, that are used to raise funds for causes in all parts of the world or that sort of thing. And so I think that our uh, this wine community is uniquely sort of positioned to to make a splash. And of course, we do have, while, while many of us are altruistic in our beliefs, because I am a very deep uh, environmentalist, um, it is also about self-preservation of our of our family owned businesses. It's this is really important. It sure is. Uh, our guest is Beth Novak Milligan uh, from Spotswood. Casey, we got to wrap it up. You had a quick question. I, yes, I have a question for you. I don't want to let you go without asking you. If you were going to have a winemaker for dinner, who would that be? And I don't know if you're a cook or not, but what would you serve? Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, you know what? I would I, I would turn the tables on that. I would love to have dinner with both Angelo and Gaia. Gaia. Uh, and I would love to do that in the Piedmont because I... I would first of all, I want to have that truffle experience in, in November, and secondly, I just think the precision uh, and the beauty of the wines that they make are just stunning. I mean, we get to try them here, and I always just find myself sitting in front of these glasses of wine, going, "These are just, you know, in the great wines. I just love how they express where they're from, and I love that precision and that trueness to to place and sight. And so I would. Although I'd love to have them for dinner, I would love to to dine. <laughs> I would take them out, but I would love to. I would love to dine with yeah, the family. we're with you there in the Piedmont. We'll meet uh, you there, Beth. Yeah, let's do Beth, it. Thanks. Let's plan on that. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. I'm just staring at a Magnum of 2016 Spotswood. There's a few Ooh. bottles left in BC. Hardly any. All your wine is mostly sold out the moment it gets here, but. Uh, 2016 Magnum of Spotswood. Now, there is a bottle of wine you could keep for a while and have a lot of fun with. Absolutely. That wine will hold for many, many years. Thanks, Beth. Uh, Great to catch up with you. I wish we had more time. Uh, We can't wait to get down there and uh, see you the next time we're available. We can cross the border and get there. Uh, We we will. I will hold you to that. Please, please come and visit us. And I and I mean that very sincerely. There's more to come. This is the BC Food and Wine Radio Network. Taste the flavors of the season at Summerhill Pyramid Bistro and Wine Shop. Their heated patio is open with more space for you to dine safely. So come enjoy a menu showcasing ingredients from their on-site culinary garden. Pair your meal with a new release Summerhill wine for an extraordinary organic experience. The flavors of the season are in abundance at Summerhill Pyramid Bistro and Wine Shop. Online, summerhill.bc.ca. Discover the good life right in your own backyard. Destination, the Watermark Beach Resort in beautiful Asuyus. Featuring spectacular views of Asuyus Lake, walking distance to shops, plus dining at the Watermark's very own 15 Park Bistro. And make sure to book your spring and summer travel now to avoid disappointment at the South Okanagan Resort that defines easy living. Visit watermarkbeachresort.com for full details and keep up to date on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
You know you want it, so come and get it. The Modest Butcher invites you to happy hour every day from 2 to 4 p.m. On the menu, beers, cocktails, wine by the glass or half liter, and don't forget about the new appies. Also making a comeback, Tommy and Tannen Tuesday. Get their tremendously sized tomahawk steak with all the fixins and a bottle of their tomahawk-worthy vino for $180. For more details and to book, visit modestbutcher.com. Come and get it. Clos de Soleil Winery knows that the best wines keep it simple. It's all about the grapes and the place where they are grown. Minimal handling, minimal intervention, maximum beauty in the bottle. Nestled in a sunny, stony corner of BC's Similkameen Valley, Clos de Soleil produces wines that blend the best of Bordeaux varieties with their unique terroir. The result? Wines that are elegant and effortlessly special. Tastings by appointment or buy online at closdesoleil.ca. Free shipping to BC and Alberta on orders of six or more bottles. GizmondiOnWine.com, BC's destination for finding great wine at all price points. With their easy-to-use search engine of over 30,000-plus tasting notes, you can find the wines you want by price, points, and more. Bookmark GizmondiOnWine.com for the new notes posted daily, each with a photo of the label. Get new ideas and find great buys with seasonal and weekly top 10 wine lists, original stories, and videos. If wine matters to you, join us at GizmondiOnWine.com. Follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Giz- Mondi on wine. Now back to BC Food and Wine Radio. Here's Anthony Gizmondi and Casey Wilson. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Anthony Gizmondi with Casey Wilson. Earlier this year, we traveled virtually to the region of Yekla, the smallest, most northern wine zone in Murcia, southeast Spain, to speak with family member Daniel Castaño, Bodega Castaño. The topic is the little-known Monastrell or Mavedra grape. Here's Daniel Castaño. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for this uh, this opportunity. Yeah, we, we are located in the southern part of Spain, uh, not far from the coast, and perhaps the two most relevant locations as a reference could be Valencia or Alicante down on the Mediterranean coast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, one hour by car from the coast, but we are high in altitude where we are. It's pretty much uh, between six and 800 meters above sea level. That's kind of yeah. the, the location where the vineyards are. You're uh, very famous for the Monastrell grape, so maybe we'll start there because it's a great story. It's been around a long time and, and grown uh, in many places around the world. What can you tell us about Monastrell today that uh, we should know? Well, <clears throat> Monastrell is, a, is an amazing, uh, it's a super resistant grape variety, uh, in, in our case, has proven to to have an amazing adaptation to a dry climate. is uh, is is a is a is a kind of vine that can resist like uh, you know a number of months without seeing rain. I mean, we have uh, we may have had four months in a row no rain, and the vines, bush vines, non irrigated, will still show an amazing. Uh, liveliness and and freshness uh, that's mm-hmm. that's a you know very interesting to to see that yeah uh known as Mobedra across the border in France uh, did you take it to France or did France take it to you or did someone bring it there what, what what is a bit of the old history of it yeah it's it's interesting because i mean from what we have uh, kind of uh seen we we've made some kind of research we've uh, been you know with some uh, you know colleagues from France that we have uh, made some tastings together you know in the Provence, you know, the parts in the Bandol region. So for, for what it looks like, Mourbetre 
Monastrel belong to the same family, but you know, for some reasons, there there must be some kind of like uh, different clones in, in the end that make yeah. make them a little bit slightly different. But obviously, you know, they they come from the same family. Whether you know Monastrel came to Spain to France, I mean, we we see we've seen you know this vine you know uh, staying in this land in this part of the of the country for you know quite a long time. You know, we have like. Uh, uh, Greeks, uh, in theory, uh, started really producing wines uh, back a uh, few few centuries ago. Yeah, true. Wow, that's a long time ago. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the reason we wanted to catch up with you today was, uh, in both Casey and I have this wine in front of us now, is a, a new release from Hecula, uh, from uh, Castaño, called the Hecula Monastrel, and it's organic, uh, so let's start there with organics. A lot of people are pursuing it. What's the history of organics at, at your property? Well, <clears throat> we are these days really addressing uh, our winemaking operation into organic. And that is, uh, well, the case in these cases due to a very dry weather condition. Very little rain during the year. Our vineyards are naturally treated. It means we don't need to use any pesticide or agrochemicals at all. And based on, on current situation, people wanting to be more careful with environment, sustainability. Putting all these facts together, we have uh, the capability to contribute a bit more with uh, nature. And the decision has been made. I mean, my family has decided by 2023, vintage production is going to be uh, organic. I mean, all our vineyards will be organically certified. Yeah. Mm. That's fantastic. Uh, we we like to hear that. Always good for uh, what's good for the land. I think is good for all of us. So that that that's great. Uh, okay, we're tasting the wine, Casey. You've just had a sip of this wine. Uh, it's a long weekend in BC. What do you think? I can't wait to take it home and finish it off. <laughs> and I w- would love to know, Danielle, what you what's your favorite food pairing with Monastro? Well, <clears throat> it, it's. Uh, I I have Ecula, uh, you know, as a very versatile uh, wine in terms of food pairing. Uh, you know, uh, this spiciness that comes uh, through makes it really open. But to me, um, I mean, one of my, my preference could be, you know, a nice barbecue, but in particular, a nice burger. This is this is my wine whenever I'm even, you know, being at home or when I travel, you know, having a juicy you know, big thick burger is, is uh, you know, my, my uh, you know, this is the, the way to, to really feel the pleasure of uh, food and wine in this case. So that's, uh, a, you know, easy recommendation in this case. I could really put with, with this uh, 90, yeah. 2019 Ecula. Yeah. I'm thinking of myself, I'm thinking about like grilled lamb chops. Like it's, it's quite a rich wine, but what, what's interesting is the acidity is, is quite vibrant. I, I know you mentioned you're at altitude. Is that part of it, like cooler cooler evenings or cooler nights? Yeah, that, that's exactly. Yeah, we may have, you know, summers can be like super hot during the day, but during the night, uh, yeah, temperature kind of, uh, you know, drops uh, easily. Uh, Celsius, we are talking about uh, 16 degrees, while, you know, during the day we may reach 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. I so, think it would. Yeah. Be, I think it would be uh, great for a barbecue all summer here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Our guest is Daniel Castaño from Bodega Castaño in uh, Spain. We were talking about Monastrel and mentioning no water. 
Uh, let's talk a bit about old vines too, because they're they're such uh, interesting people in some ways to me. Do you talk to your old vines, and do you do they inspire you when you when you walk in old vines? <clears throat> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we 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 are we've been you know trying to secure and take care of uh, so so many plots we have in the area, especially on the higher elevation. We have vineyards between sixty even some over 100 years old vines. And uh, mm. obviously, you know, we are talking about low-yielding vineyards, but in the end, well, the fruit we are really processing here is uh, what we are really getting in terms of uh, concentration structure. It's, it's amazing the, the the vibrancy we really get into the wines here, which is, is phenomenal, yeah. What uh, so? How does the family deal with the vineyards? Because if they're if you have these old vines, it, obviously you have to replant a few, maybe a very small percentage every year. Or how, how is that approached in, in you know in terms of the whole vineyard? Yeah, well, <clears throat> in some cases, uh, some of these vines are getting to a, you know an age when obviously they are you know getting old. You know, like like like, like people do, obviously. But <laughs> but in in some cases, yeah, we we try. Some of these gaps or, you know, vines are kind of, you know, just continue. Those have been, uh, well, replanted and, uh, of course, trying to just uh, put some, some of those gaps with the new ones. But, of course, those are treated separately in terms of the, the, the grape when we do the picking. So we, we mm-hmm. carry on with uh, all vines separately from those that have been replaced, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. Just wondering what's happening today in Spain. Like, are you? Can you have visitors? Are you that open? Or are you still closed, shut down? Or what? What? What's the situation at the moment for visitors? Uh, at least Spanish visitors or locals. Well, uh, only last week, um, the yeah, domestic traveling was open up again. Uh, so after it was, you know, January when it was closed down, so nobody could really commute from. Uh, province or communities within Spain. Right. Now that has just opened up again, and uh, yeah, at least people can travel. Obviously, taking care of and uh, following all the measurements that have are established. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, uh, international traveling, from what I know, that's still uh, sort of uh, controlled, not not really open so far. I guess whenever vaccination reach. In the next few weeks, I, I, I believe no more than a month from now, should be in a position to reopen again, uh, mm-hmm. you know, European countries most likely, yeah. and I think internationally as well. Yeah, that's that's for sure. So we are really starting to reactivate things, you know, especially trying to, well, you know, reorientate the uh, enoturismo. I mean, you know, having people come and visit us and uh, enjoy the, the wine experience that's hopefully that's going to be an important part of the of the of the whole thing again. Yes, mm-hmm. we've all been missing that. And Danielle, you've got a new bag in box format for Monastrell. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, exactly. Go yeah, ahead. No bag in box is uh, is from what we can see. I mean, we started in the Scandinavian countries, and uh, this is a uh, this is a format that has really uh, well seen an amazing growth. I mean, especially during lockdown periods that people couldn't really, you know, I mean, go out and, and do their normal things uh, 
in in uh, you know bars restaurants so so this this we we have really perhaps uh, put a little bit of focus there as well um we uh, yeah we 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 decided we had the specially entry level range uh with this, the organic also uh where uh, where where you know open we were open to really put that in place and we started to ship into BC, uh, you know, some of the wines in, in bag in box, which is are starting to really show good response yeah. as well. That's yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm just such a big fan of all that because I think you know, for instance, if it's a and it will be, I guess, in a few years, if it's organic in bag in the box, I mean, the whole package together, the sustainability of it all, it just makes a lot of sense to young consumers, and I think you're on the right track there. Uh, we can only hope that our monopolies will embrace it. Uh, they have a few now, but the selection's pretty brutal at the moment, and not very. And it doesn't really represent their best suppliers. So it'd be nice to see some top producers like Castaño in there with the uh, bag in the box and giving consumers more choice. Uh, so keep on pushing, man. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will without any <laughs> doubt. Yes. That's it for today's show. Tune in again next week for Anthony Gizmondi and Casey Wilson on the BC Food and Wine Radio Network. BC Food and Wine Radio is a TKS West production. 